You're now listening to episode 52 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with Lane Kawaoka, co-founder of MFPE Investments, which controls over 2,100 units and where he is responsible for finding investment opportunities, analysis, and marketing. In this episode, we discuss investing in single versus multifamily, what asset classes and market types you should be investing in, why cash flow is so important, the real estate professional status, and much more. Something to note here, for some reason while we were recording this episode, my voice came out distorted, almost like one of those guys on the phone in the movies that's trying to mask their voice. So I do apologize. We did want to get this content out because it is still good. Next time, we'll make sure my voice goes back to normal. But with that said, let's just jump right into today's episode. Lane, thanks for coming on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little information on your background, how you got started in real estate and where you are today? Yeah, so I started investing about 10 years ago. I was out of fresh out of college, engineering school, got out, was a construction supervisor. And then I started to save up to buy a primary residence because that's what we're all programmed and trained to do from little kids, not to go to school, get a good job, to buy a house. And supposedly that's the way to financial freedom, but I don't really believe that in the, these days. But I bought that first rental in Seattle. It was an A-class rental. It was three hundred fifty thousand. It rented for twenty-two hundred a month, and the mortgage was sixteen hundred. So I didn't know much back then, but you know, twenty-two hundred minus sixteen hundred was nice beer money at the time. So that was that was how things started. You know, sort of as an accident. All right. So you started off with the one property in Seattle. What are you currently investing in today? So I bought a few more turnkey rentals after that, got up to 10. And then I transitioned to multifamily apartments and other kinds of syndications because I had sort of reached a critical mass point where I needed more scalability as opposed to um, you know doing all the work myself, trading sweat equity for returns. Um, so now I just sort of look around for good operators and I go into larger deals as a limit partner. What was that kind of like turning point where you realized I need more scalability? You said you hit a critical mass. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the critical mass point for a lot of people, it's like a net worth point. I would say it's anywhere from quarter of a million dollars net worth up to a million dollars net worth. We start to realize that trading your time for money, managing these supposedly passive rentals, these even turnkeys, isn't just the way to go. And for me, that was when I got up to 11 single-family home rentals. I had five in Atlanta, four in Birmingham, one in India, and one in Pennsylvania. Um, still pretty passive at that point. You know, I had professional property management to run them, but out of those, that sample size of 11, I was having like an eviction or two a year, a big catastrophe that happened every quarter. And when I mean catastrophe, you know, maybe like a pipe broke or, you know, there was some kind of vandalism or something. Um, many annoying, like, you know, weed yard violations, that, that kind of stuff. Those are no big deal. But, you know, you start to do the math. Every one of those little turnkey rentals, you're only going to get a few hundred bucks of cash flow. With 10 rentals, that's only $3,000 a month. You're not going to retire on that. You're going to need three times at that, at least. So 
30 rentals. If you do the math, it's an eviction every quarter, at least, and then a big issue that happens every month. And that's what I mean. It's not scalable. Got it. So you were looking at your portfolio, looking at how it was being kind of operated or, or the data sort of behind us. So you're doing some of the call it analytics, um, whether analytically or not. And you realize that, all right, if I triple this portfolio, I'm going to be spending a lot of time dealing with weed violations and yard citations and dealing with evictions. And now I, I guess my question would be, why doesn't the property manager deal with a lot of that stuff? Well, they do do it, but at some point it's just, you know, you're still getting the emails and you're still having to hold them accountable. Um, don't get me wrong with 10 or 20 rentals. I mean, anybody with decent email skills and accountability from a professional job can deal with it. Right. But you know, when you get up to 30 or 40 rentals for a mere like eight to $12,000 passive a month, it starts to become a job. <laughs> and it's just, I think it's a little out of a hand. So I was kind of like, man, this is beginning to suck. <laughs> and it's just not, yeah, it's just not the way to go long-term, but great place to start. Don't get me wrong. I think everybody should get a single family home to start. So you made the transition into multifamily and, and how has that compared to your experience investing in single family homes? Well, I think the return's a little bit lower on paper, but I don't know. I mean, like I just had like one of my single family homes, we had an eviction and I just got the bill from the contractor. It was like 60 grand. I was like, whoa, like, <laughs> those are the things that, you know, those are the whammies that kind of get you in the long term that you, makes you really scratch your head. Is it even worth it? to be doing it yourself for the perceived higher returns. Um, whereas a passive investor, all you do is, you know, you make the educated guess up front if you like the management team and if you like the deal and you run the numbers yourself and you just sit back and you relax and hopefully the deal goes well and you get your cash flow and you get the kicker at the end. So it's just a different way of investing. And I just try and copy other investors that I want to be like, and that's kind of what they do. Got it. You know, so we have a lot of clients that are working full-time jobs when they're trying to build a real estate portfolio. And they also have limited capital, of course, because they're not necessarily millionaires yet. right? So based on what you're saying, it kind of sounds like they should start out with a single family rental and then maybe transition up to these more limited partnership investments. What would you say is the best use of someone's capital if they're trying to get out of you know, a W-2 job, which is a goal of a lot of our clients? Yeah. I mean, the place to start off is like, what is your net worth? If your net worth is under a quarter million dollars, it's a no brainer. You can't go, you shouldn't be going into passive syndications. You need money to be a passive investor. And if, and a lot of these passive investments, you need 50 grand is the minimum investment. So that would just be irresponsible for a syndicator to take you in on that deal where they're taking in, you know, 20, 25% of your net worth. So if you're under, again, if you're under quarter million dollars, maybe even half a million dollars net worth, you shouldn't even think be thinking about passive syndications. You should be doing it yourself because you need to be learning it, which is the second point too. Got it. So it's more or less like you need money to make the money in the syndication space as a passive investor. So you need to uh, be doing yourself to not only A, gain the experience of doing it. So you understand you know, when you do make those passive investments eventually, uh, what you're getting into and also uh, so you can make the money to invest. Is that accurate? Right, right. I think there was one special case, you know, for like doctors or lawyers making over 200 grand a year who are extremely busy at your day job. Maybe that you make a point to go right into syndications or as I say, go straight to the MBA without going to college is sort of the analogy I like to use. But they have to understand the rules and, and the risks of investing in bigger deals and a lot of the marketing tactics 
that are used to kind of trick, you know, it's classic, right? Doctors are usually bad investors because they, you know, they have a lot of money, but they don't really know anything, right? It's the classic doctor trick. So the, how do you prevent that? You buy your own rental or two and understand it from the inside out. You don't go buy like five or 10 like me. You just buy a couple. Makes sense. So when they're buying these rentals, what asset class should people be looking at when they're first starting class? A, B, C, what are your thoughts on that? So I started with like A-class rental. I just got lucky because I bought it at the right time where the values were a lot cheaper than what it is today. You want to f- try and find something that cash flows, number one. So if you're in a, most times you're going to find that in the B and C-class locations. And unfortunately, you know, you go to the B, the C or D class, you're going to have more problems. So it's, you have to weigh the risks either way. Some people will say start with class A, so you kind of learn the ropes a little bit on that perspective. My guidance would be started with a good class B or really good class C. At least you have the financial buffer there, the cash flow to kind of help you out if things, if there's some issues or expenses you need to pay. Do you find yourself primarily investing in primary, secondary, or tertiary markets? Uh, Mostly secondary and tertiary markets. I mean, primary markets like Hawaii, San Francisco, Seattle, they're just not going to work for cash flow. Two reasons, you just have too much unsophisticated money investing there. They're going to push prices up and uh, you're just not going to find cash flow, right? You're trying to look for properties that are better than the 1% rent-to-value ratio um, from a high level to invest for cash flow first. Mm-hmm. So you focus on the secondary and tertiary markets. And have you found one type of market to be more successful than the other? I mean, then it becomes down to people, right? Like, you know, I mean, I could list off a dozen markets like Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Memphis, Little Rock, Jacksonville. Um, I think it's important to zero in on a couple that, and go with the ones that you have the best relationship with the people or you have the most referrals with in that location. Because at the end of the day, it's, did you pick the right property on the right block? You know, I think most, most of my folks are engineers, so they like to get all this data and stuff like that and just waste a lot of time. But that doesn't really, you know, help you if you buy the wrong property on the wrong side of the block. Hmm. So you've put a lot of emphasis on cash flow. You know, you, you said specifically, you know, primary markets like San Francisco, there's just no, there's no cash flow there. Why cash flow over potential appreciation? Well, I mean, I think buying buying low, sell high makes sense, but like it's sort of gambling, right? Like I go after the sure thing, which is cash flow. Um, so it's the great debate, right? Cash flow or appreciation. I mean, as you can tell, I'm a cash flow guy. <laughs> I don't. Simple <laughs> passive cash flow. <laughs> right. Like I don't take chances. I'm not looking for those big pops of appreciation, even though they probably will come, right? Real estate usually goes up. But I'm at a stage where I don't really need to take chances, right? I've sort of hit my quote-unquote critical mass where if I just invest for cash flow, hit my financial goals. Simple. Okay. Would you be able to just let our listeners know what a critical mass means? Um, so what I tell folks is like, come up with a certain number that you want to live comfortably. Most people, it's like 10 grand passive a month. And you figure out how well can you invest and get that money back in your pocket. So like I said, like, you know, if you buy a turnkey rental, usually you're cash flowing two to 300 bucks a month. So you're going to need about 30 of those things to hit your $10,000 cash flow a month and quit, be able to quit your job. So you may not be there yet, but you may be there in, you know, you can do the math and figure this out. You may be there in three and a half years or five and a half years. Along those lines, because we have a lot of clients that are a lot of 
prospects that will come to us and they'll say, I always ask them what their goals are. And they'll say, well, I want to retire for my job. And then the next question is, do you have a number in mind? And, and it is typically $10,000 to $15,000 a month in cash flow. And I think that a lot of folks don't, they, they don't really think about uh, potential CapEx for the properties. Um, like even when they budget it in, they don't really think about the potential CapEx for the properties. So what, what I've always advised that people do is if, if their target's $10,000 a month, then go for 12 or go for 13. That way, if something does happen, if the roof goes out or the HVAC unit goes out or whatever, it doesn't affect your $10,000 a month in cash flow that you're pocketing on an ongoing basis. So you kind of build in a little bit of a buffer there. Do you think that makes any sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do that a little differently. Like I run, I, I'll underwrite it on each individual deal. So like, I mean, I have a little analyzer that people can download for free on my site but I'll bury like an extra 10% of all rents for CapEx and then put it on a per property basis. But basically the same thing you're doing. So that net $10,000 is, is even after the reserve. Yeah, and vacancy yeah. and you know stuff goes wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. Historically, our clients are not very great at reserving. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, so we will typically just say, why don't you just aim a little higher and then it won't be a problem. I mean, it, it makes total sense. The the downside to that is what I notice is people, they get a little bit like, but Brandon, that's going to take me 12 years to get there. <laughs> it's very like depressing. Yeah. So what I usually try and do with my folks is like, all right, let's come up with an intermediary goal, right? Like it's not 10,000, it's 4,000 so that your wife or you can stay home part-time, right? So you don't have to pay a babysitter and pay them five grand a month. You can watch them from home and sort of do these passive investments from home. And what they'll realize is like, yeah, you get that few thousand dollars of cash flow, that might just be 10 houses. And to get those said 10 houses, you know, at 30 grand for down payment each, you just might need to take, you know, buy those houses and maybe take a couple hundred grand from your 401k or something and you've got it. And then, you know, in theory, your spouse can start staying home tomorrow. Makes sense. So when you look at these properties, right, uh, and you're looking to invest, what are the metrics you're focused on? Is it cash on cash return? Is it is it internal rate of return? I know you mentioned the rent to value before. Which of these metrics is the most important and why do you use those metrics? Cash and cash return or like cap rate is dictated on how you underwrite your numbers. That's kind of like the at the tail of the car, the exhaust pipe, what comes out of the end. I try and get a little um in the beginning of the machine and just look at the rent to value ratios going in for now. And then once you, you've, you know, they say start with a hundred properties. Once you've gotten down to the 10 best ones, I think that's when you start to put it into the analyzer one by one individually, and then start to see what your cash on cash return is. But, you know, basically I, I tell my guys, just go get a hundred data points and you tell me what you want. Right? Like I can't tell you what a good cash and cash return is. You just have to go and get the best and what's out there. Right? It's like dating. I don't know what's a good one. You just tell me what. Go date a lot of people and go pick the best. Right? <laughs> is that the strategy? <laughs> yeah. Like you know, your mileage may vary. I did it all wrong. I did it all <laughs> wrong. <laughs> That's awesome. So you've been talking a lot about managing properties virtually. At least you did at the beginning here when you were talking about all the turnkey properties and everything. What are some of your like best tips or best practices for folks that are managing properties virtually? A lot of our clients have trouble managing properties virtually, and a lot of our prospects do too. And even listeners of this podcast, I'm sure, they're, they're a little scared to invest outside the areas that they don't know really well. They don't really know how to hold virtual teams accountable to whatever their goals and expectations are. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And I, I think you know a lot of people working a day job, a lot of us work remotely. 
in this respect too. So it's a lot of it is like keeping people accountable with via email and phone calls. Um, so as soon as something happens, you need to, you know, create a paper trail. Hey, Brandon, that plumbing thing broke. You tell me what your plan is and I'm going to hold you accountable based on that plan. Emails, phone calls, whatever you need to do. Um, you need to be sort of that squeaky wheel, but then you don't want to be that landlord. That's the real pain in the butt that people just sort of stop helping you out. So you you leave, you fire yourself as the, as the owner. Um, so there's a fine balance. I feel like people rarely get it right on how much to be a pester and how much to be involved. Yeah, I, I have uh, two properties that I manage virtually. And one of the property management companies does a great job, but I do check in with them on an ongoing basis. The other property management company does an okay job. And typically I, I will check in with them whenever a neighbor complains about the yard being overgrown or something like that. So I'm probably a little bit too relaxed in my management style of my property managers. Yeah. I mean, sometimes my property manager doesn't sends me this big check. Like it seems like every few, few months, cause I don't really keep up on it either. I got other bigger things to do, but I mean, some people will pester them all the time, which is what you don't want to do. But then again, I think the biggest thing that you can do as a passive investor is just work with the right people. So make sure you're getting referrals from other passive investors that you know. And that comes to like the most key is you need to be building up your passive investor network as a passive investor where you can kind of, it's an even value exchange. You help other people, they help you. Who are they using? Who's their HVAC guy? Who's their painter? Who's their plumber? Who's their property manager? And then, you know, as things change, right? Because sometimes some property managers will start to uh, not go as well and you want to change. I kind of agree with uh, one of the things you just said in there. You have to work with the right people. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to integrity and competency, right? So I have an AHU unit that I was a general partner on, but it is relatively passive because the level of sophistication of the property manager, there's not necessarily you know a real need to always be on top of them, right? They know what they're doing. They do it well. We have a call every two weeks. It's an update. If we need to pivot, we need to adjust and we make those adjustments. But there's, I'm certain, sure, you know, I've heard stories from clients here and from other investors where they're probably managed, it was just hard to find a sophisticated property manager. And you have to stay on top of those people because it's like, it's like uh, dealing with school children. Do you see that a lot? Yeah. I mean, but prop, let's face it, property managers is a very hard business. I wouldn't want to do it. You're dealing with the worst side of people. You're dealing with whiny owners and deadbeat tenants a lot of times. And like, it's not like if people have a good management skills and they're doing a good job, they should probably find a different business and kick butt at that other business and staying in property management. So that's my spiel on property management. So that makes it hard for us passive investors because these people are critical to our team and then finding the right one. Guys, so switching gears just a little bit, we do do ask some accounting and tax questions on this podcast because we are the real estate CPA. Um, so when you started out, you had the handful of single family rentals. How did you handle your accounting taxes when you were going through that process? Um, so I don't know if this is the right way of doing it, but I mean, when I started out, I didn't do, I didn't really do much. I did it all in TurboTax myself. And I learned that the schedule E is where you put all your expenses and your profits. So I made this spreadsheet where I put all the different categories. Like, I don't know what you guys probably remember it by heart, but like marketing, advertising, debts and you know all these expenses and i would just put you know rows of all the dates and then all the columns for all the schedule e forms and that's how i did it 
whether it's right or wrong. Nothing wrong with that, man. We, we find that folks with smaller portfolios, uh, even 20 properties or less, can pretty much effectively manage their own portfolio on spreadsheets. We've started recommending Google Sheets because you can integrate Google Sheets with a lot of other things versus a simple spreadsheet. You can also invite people to your Google Sheets so it's easier to collaborate. But yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the same thing that I do. I, I have Google Sheets for my properties. I don't do any sort of hardcore accounting there. And yeah. uh, I don't really think that you need to. I, I think that you need to do the hardcore accounting whenever you have investors. That's where the, the professional level accounting kind of comes into play. Yeah. I mean, my, my workflow is I have like a Google folder or Dropbox. And, you know, from time to time, I'll take receipt pictures and I'll upload to there. And then when I get a chance every once in a while, every month or two, I'll take whatever is in that Dropbox and then put it into the spreadsheet. So I can sort of batch all this stuff at the same time. And then, you know, as I get my monthly statements, I'll put it into that spreadsheet too. And then, you know, I'll, I'll slide it over to the next folder so I know that I sorted it and archived it onto the spreadsheet. Have you ever played around with If This Then That or Zapier? I did. And then like one time it didn't work on me. So I lost all complete trust in this program and I went back to my <laughs> old school. Most of the time when those programs don't work, I realize it's user error. <laughs> yeah, but like still, I don't trust myself, right? Because if it messed up, you're like, oh my God, when did it mess up? Like you don't have a clue, right? Like, <laughs> He's like looking at audit logs. Yeah, yeah I, I, I lost that like that $4,000 mastermind weekend invoice that I went to, you know, like... <laughs> Just gone, just disappeared. Just, just gone, right? Oh man, I don't know. I, I I try and keep it simple, even though it was a little bit more time intensive, less automation. That's just how I am huh. for those kind of things. I'm just thinking, like right now, what you could do is you could you could upload your receipts to Google Drive, but like name them in a certain format. Then you could have Zapier or if this then that trigger off of that upload automatically book it to your. Google Spreadsheet, assuming you're using Google Spreadsheets, and you could have Google Spreadsheets just coded, just automatically update. Oh, so, so I do do that in a way. Like, if I'm if I'm going to like UPS and mailing something off, I'll put in the date. The format will be the date, the you know how much money I spent, and then a little description of why I did it. What was the the meaningful business expense? Mm-hmm. So that way, I never have to open up the actual receipts. I already know what it is, and I'm just adding it manually onto the right cell. Yeah, but you can make the computer do that for you, man. That, that's... Here, I think you got a good idea, but here's where I'm going with this. I'm getting rid of all my single family homes and just going to K1s. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not looking to build <laughs> a big game, right? <laughs> I'll, yeah. let, I'll let other people pay for the accounting and I'll, right. just, I'll relax, get the K1. Right. And just I mean, it's nice being a passive investor. It gets easier, right? <laughs> it gets way more simplified legally and tax wise when you're a passive and you just get these simple K1s and. You don't need to do it. You just give it to your CPA and he does it all. There you go. That's a good strategy. All right. Next question for you. Tax question. What's your favorite tax strategy or one you find using being used most often? I I think everybody should try and be like a real estate agent because in that respect, now you open up a whole plethora of reasons for business expenses. If you don't want to be a real estate agent, I would say try and figure out something you're passionate about, you know, whether it's selling stuff on eBay or making some kind of arts and crafts or whatever, or being some kind of consultant and teaching somebody to do something. So you can start to make some business expenses. I think that's a, that's why I tell a lot of my folks, because a lot of them are just, you know, they're investing passively and it's not that hard and doesn't take too much time, but if they can combine 
you know, something they're passionate about for some tax benefits, then mm-hmm. that's a pretty awesome combo. Yeah, absolutely. You always have to be careful of the hobby loss rules, right? You, you can't show losses consistently every single year. The IRS will come back and disallow it. But if you are legitimately trying to earn a profit, you can most certainly write off uh, business expenses. And, and to be a business expense, a lot of people, a lot of people ask. They ask if you need to have an entity in place. So do I need to have an LLC? And, and you don't. You just have to have a business. A business expense it has to be ordinary and necessary to to run your business. So we'll have clients do the same thing where they'll create small businesses on the side and then ordinary expenses like their internet, their home and their primary home insurance, primary interest, uh, primary home mortgage interest, their cell phone bills, things like that. They can start allocating to this business that they've created. So I I like that tip. I like it a lot. Yeah. I mean, let me, if you don't mind, let me ask you a question here on, you know, a lot of my guys, they invest in passively in syndications. So they're not an actively active participant, so they can't really qualify as a real estate professional. So I'm like, well, just be a real estate agent and just play some referrals back and forth here, there, and then does that count? As does it count for what? As being a real estate professional, as long as they don't have another job. So to be a real estate professional, you have to work 750 hours in real estate in a real estate trader business, and greater than half your time. It has to be spent in a real estate activity. So greater than half your time of all material participation activities has to be real estate. So that's why people with full-time jobs, they don't qualify. So if if the clients that you have don't have full-time jobs, then they could probably easily meet the greater than half your time. Then the question just becomes the 750 hour rule. Now, here's the kicker. Even if you qualify as a real estate professional, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can take the passive losses coming from your rental real estate activities. You have to demonstrate material participation in your rental real estate activities. So I could be a real estate agent and work 750 hours and qualify as a real estate professional, but it does not allow me to deduct my rental passive losses. I also have to be able to demonstrate that I have materially participated in my rental activities in order to qualify those losses as non-passive. So if you're an LP, that's just not going to work. Typically not going to work unless, unless your spouse is somehow like a GP in the deal or something like that. Um, It's, it's typically not going to work. I see. I see. Now, if you have your own portfolio though, and you are, you've materially participated in your own portfolio, like your, your 10 units, let's say you, you're a real estate agent, you hit 750 hours, and you've also been able to materially participate in your entire 10-unit portfolio. You can make a grouping election that groups all of your real estate activities into one activity. So you can then group in the LP side of the coin. But you you would, most of the time, and again, it's, it's very circumstantial, right? Like we, from client to client, the advice that we give is very different. But I would say like on a high level in general, you would probably need to have your own rental portfolio built out that you manage yourself, and then you could group in the LP investments. But if other people are managing your LP investments, which is the whole point of being an LP there, you're not materially participating in that. And so you would have to demonstrate that as a group with all of your rental activities, you do materially participate. I see. So if a guy has a couple of rentals, but a dozen LP syndication deals, can he group the two rentals with a dozen LP deals? Or is that a, your mileage may vary? Yeah, it's a complicated question because yeah. like hey, you're telling, telling me I got to hold on to a couple of rentals then. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's just if you get rid of them, you might not be able to take your entire losses. You, you might not be able to demonstrate 
that you materially participate in your rental real estate activities. That, that's the only thing. And that couldn't be not a bad thing. Like, let's say that you've staggered your LP investments, right? And you, you invest in a new LP and you put 50K in and you get a $40,000 loss that's allocated back to you. They do a cost study and all that stuff. So now you get this $40,000 loss. Let's assume that you've offloaded all your rentals. You, you, you qualify as a real estate professional because you're a real estate agent, but you can't demonstrate material participation in your rental real estate activities. So you can't qualify any of the losses as non-passive. So that $40,000 loss coming out of this new syndicate that you've invested in, it's a passive loss. But let's also assume that one of the old syndicates you invested in liquidates in that year and they give you a 60K capital gain or whatever. Um, that passive loss from the other LP can then offset that. So not all is lost, but yeah, you'll, you would definitely lose some benefits if you, can't, if you can't demonstrate that you materially participate in your rental real estate activities. I want it now though. <laughs> <laughs> then you, yeah, it's a really interesting thing. Like People think if I qualify for real estate professional, then I'm done. That's only the first part of the, the steps to take those passive losses. You do have to demonstrate that you materially participate. And that's very difficult to do if you have LPs. I mean, if you had like 100 LPs, you could potentially, you have to look at investor hours versus actual material participation hours. So it depends on what you're doing in relation to those LP investments. But typically, if you're sitting on the beach, sipping a cocktail, you're not going to be able to take those passive losses. Those losses will be considered passive. You're not going to be able to demonstrate material participation. So they would just kind of hang out on your tax returns or offset future passive income. But, but if you're thinking about it, if all you're doing is investing in real estate at some point, you do achieve uh, your critical mass. You go out and you invest in real estate only. You may not have much ordinary income or other income to need to be offset by this anyway, because you're not necessarily working so much where you have this huge overhead of, say, W-2 income that you might once have or income from your active business that all of a sudden you need to offset. So you might just be good with the tax advantage investments of real estate itself. Oh, that's a good point. Good point. But uh, when it comes to uh, your favorite piece of tech that you're currently using our mobile app in your business, I know we kind of went before that you're not, automation really isn't 100% your thing at this point, you're going the more passed away. But other than that, what's your favorite piece of tech or mobile app that you're currently using? Um, I mean, I like Apple's stuff. It seems to always work and it doesn't really bog down like the PC stuff. Um, Google Drive, like you guys said, use it all the time for collaboration. Yeah, I like, for some reason, Dropbox has a PDF scanner, but Google Drive doesn't. That kind of ticks me off. But So that's the only reason why I use Dropbox. When you say PDF scanner, like uh, you mean like the mobile app, like you could take a picture of the PDF and then yeah. have it scan into? Yeah, like when you have your receipts. And Google Drive does it, but it, the picture, the file is big. Yeah, I know you could do it with like an image. Sometimes just an image file, but it's still not as, uh, as nice. And probably doesn't have the OCR reader. I know that uh, some of these PDF scanners, you can actually have it OCR'd so that you could like hit that control F and search for anything you want in the document. Makes life much easier. Yeah, I never, I mean, never got that to work for me. The neat receipts thing. Oh, the neat receipts. Um, yeah, there's an app you could use that could help you with that. It's called Expensify. Um, Expensify, you can take the pictures of uh, the receipts and uh, it will use the it's OCR reader uh, to break down those receipts and categorize them for you or at least do some of the lead work um, and you keep it organized. So that's a great way to keep receipts. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, I'm not sure I really don't have too much experience with Expensify. I have the app, used it a few times. You could probably upload it to Google Drive, although I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, Brandon, do you have any thoughts on that one? 
No, I think you're right on the money. I mean, I think that's uh, it just depends on the workflow that you want to build out that works for you. So, Lane, thanks for coming on the show today. What is the best way for our listeners to learn more about your game content? You? Um, yeah, I mean, I have my podcast, Simple Passive Cash Flow on iTunes, Google Play. I would say if you're interested in doing like turnkey rentals and getting started, the first 20 are probably where you should listen to. But I've kind of changed my beat of my drum lately to go in more of a, as a passive investor. So I kind of just talk about what I'm up to investing wise. And uh, my email address is lane at simplepassivecashflow.com if anybody wants to get a hold of me. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me guys. No problem. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Are you ready to take your real estate investing business to the next level? Whether you're a seasoned vet or just getting started, the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit coming up on June 27th to June 29th has something for everyone. With a stellar lineup of expert speakers with proven track records for success, learn from the best and apply everything directly to your multifamily business. Speakers include Dan Hanford, Joe Fairless, Kathy Fetke, Matt Faircloth, Ben Labovich, Michael Blanc, our very own tax strategist, Thomas Castelli, and many more. Don't miss this incredible event designed specifically for today's brightest and boldest multifamily investors. Visit www.apartmentevent.com and use promo code THOMAS to receive $100 off the full access pass. Again, that's www.apartmentevent.com and use the promo code THOMAS for $100 off the full access pass. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.